Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the editor in chief here at Modern Retail, and I'm joined this week with Jing Gao, the founder and CEO of Flyby Jing, which is known for many things, but especially the chili crisp, which is a, a delicious little sauce. And so I'm excited to talk with Jing about just the evolution of the company. It became really big over the last year, and I feel like my I was bombarded with it on my Instagram feed, which is really great to see. And so I want to talk about just sort of how how you've approached that, all of that jazz, and sort of what's going to come up in the future. But hi, Jing, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So for those who don't know, why don't you just give a little bit of uh, the, the backstory behind Fly by Jing? Yeah, sure. So um, Fly by Jing is um, a modern Chinese food company, and uh, we're all about bringing the most high quality, um, delicious flavors from my hometown of Chengdu to the world. And um, so we're about two years old and we're majority D2C. Um, we actually started through a Kickstarter campaign uh, in 2018, and it became the highest funded craft food project on Kickstarter. And our thesis was really to um, that people were ready for a new paradigm about Chinese food that um, Chinese, you know, there's the bygone era of Chinese food being known as, um, you know, dirty, cheap and unhealthy. And we just really wanted to change that narrative and, you know, show how high quality Chinese food could be. Because I had spent about, um, I was born in Chengdu and I grew up moving all over the world, but um, spent most of my 20s in China. Um, I used to work in tech and a job brought me there. And um, I just did a deep dive into the food culture, um, realized that there was so much that, you know, I didn't know. And I actually ended up finding more of my own cultural identity through the food um, and just wanted to share it with, with others. Um, and uh, yeah, so Fly by Jing originally started as an underground supper club and a pop-up dining concept that I ran out of my studio in um, the French concession of Shanghai. And I did pop-ups in cities all over the world. And so wherever I went, I could see that people really connected to these flavors. Um, and, you know, the flavors were actually inspired by a type of restaurant in Chengdu called Fly Restaurants. And these are hole-in-the-walls that are so delicious that they attract people like flies. And I just wanted to bring that to life um, through the food that I was making, which were, you know, like myself, they were rooted in tradition. Um, I had spent years and years sourcing some of these really high-quality ingredients, um, but I was putting them together in ways that may not have, you know, been traditional and, um, you know, kind of made for the way that we eat today. So um, as I was, you know, touring the world doing these dinners, I kind of connected in my in my uh, in my head that like people just didn't have access to these ingredients and didn't know about these flavors so it just became my mission to kind of make it more accessible and available um, which led me to moving to LA and launching Fly by Jing here wow so was when you began with the pop-up concept was there ever a thought in your brain that this would be more packaged food or did that come come to light sort of while you were while you were traveling and and having these events so when it started as a pop dining concept, I did not know that it was going to become a condiment company. Um, I was really just trying to find my own voice and my own expression within Chinese food. Prior to this, I had owned a restaurant in Shanghai where, um, again, I was, you know, really trying to shine light on the, uh, you know, diversity and the complexity of Chinese cuisine in all the different regions. And um, so it was celebrating those flavors, but marrying it with kind of like a fast casual concept that was inspired by what I saw in the U.S. with um, Chipotle and Sweetgreen. And so, um, 
you know, when I started Fly by Jing, I was like really just, you know, thinking hard about like, what is my contribution to like, you know, kind of pushing the conversation about Chinese food forward, right? Because I felt like um, a lot of people have had this like preoccupation with kind of almost like keeping it stagnant in a way. And I felt like the kind of label of authenticity um, served to do that, right? Because when, you know, people say like, this is authentic, it's really um, tying it back to their own perception of what Chinese food was based on their own personal experience and kind of like not even allowing it to evolve. And I knew um, that, you know, I could see on the ground in China, in Chengdu, the street food culture was so vibrant. And there's like this kind of new legion of young people pushing the cuisine forward. And they weren't bound by rules that, you know, in the West that we kind of, you know, tended to um, treat, you know, ethnic cuisine, right? And so, um, and, and they were just evolving it forward. And I, I was really um, trying to examine kind of what is my contribution to this. So I went to Chengdu, my hometown, and I studied with this really incredible chef who's um, one of the greatest living Chinese chefs in the world. And um, just, you know, really soaked up um, kind of the the knowledge that he had. Um, and he was quite modern thinking as well. But, you know, going through his library and uh, looking at these centuries old cookbooks and learning everything that I could and really digging deep into um, ingredients, because I that's where I learned that ingredients are everything. Um, you know, you can make the same recipe using, um, you know, the same product, but of very varying uh, degrees of quality, and it would be a completely different dish. So um, I knew that I wanted to root myself in that tradition. But, um, but, you know, I was also influenced, you know, because I grew up moving to like eight different countries before I was in high school, and all, all of them with a different language, different culture. This was across Europe and then Canada eventually. And I knew that I couldn't do anything. It would be disingenuous for me to like, you know, do something that wasn't true to my experience. So it started from a very personal kind of, you know, interrogation of what, who I was through food. And um, at the time, and this is kind of the backstory of Fly by Jing, um, the reason why I named it Fly by Jing was at the time I actually went by a different name. When I was growing up, um, you know, in Germany and England and Austria, um, I felt, you know, deeply kind of, you know, um, this this sense of like not belonging, right? There, I was always the only Asian kid. Um, and, you know, I was constantly having to code switch. And at a very young age, I realized that I, I needed to adapt or blend into my environment. And so I um, adopted this name Jenny growing up, which I had lived with for pretty much my whole life up until last year. So for me, uh, naming the business Fly by Jing was really an ode to this thing that I was kind of grasping at, which was my identity, right? And so um, so I guess, yeah, from the very beginning, it was a very personal expression. And uh, when I started to make the connection that, um, you know, people were really loving these flavors and these flavors were really universal, but, you know, they just had no access to it. That's when I started thinking about, like, how do I make it more accessible? How do I make these flavors more accessible? And it just so happened that some of the dishes that I was making, um, they had these kind of sauce bases that gave it its flavor. Because um, Sichuan is known for uh, flavor. It's it's a it's a regional cuisine within China that even within China is known to have the the most um, diverse and 
and complex flavor profiles. So everything is about flavor in citron, and sauce is its natural carrier of flavor. And um, some of the um, and our core products today, like the citron chili crisp, the zhong sauce, and the mala spice mix, were all components of my dishes that I realized I could isolate, and you know they were naturally shelf stable, and um, I could bottle, and you know that's kind of how it started. Can you talk a little about, you know, look, what was the initial launch plan? How did you go about that? How did you go about sort of branding? And I will we'll go more into this later because you just did a rebrand a few months ago. But I'd love to just hear sort of how you wanted to approach the initial launch of the company, specifically since it is so sort of intrinsically tied with you as a person and as an entrepreneur. Like there's a lot of sort of identity issues in there. So how did you think about sort of making that into a product for with general mass appeal? It actually um, became, it evolved into a more personal brand over time. In the beginning, like I said, I was still going by Jenny and I was still trying to figure out who I was and what I was trying to do. Um, but, uh, you know, the first, um, the the seed for it was planted actually in 2018 when I went to Expo West. And um, I had always kind of thought that I wanted to um, bring this business to the U.S. in some way. And the reason for that was that, um, I could see that, you know, all of these false narratives and the prejudices that exist against Chinese cuisine, um, a lot of it, you know, is, you know, dictated, um, like U.S. media actually dictates a lot of global culture and the way that people see, you know, different cultures and different peoples. And I knew that if I wanted to try to shift that perspective, I needed to kind of start in the U.S. So um, in 2018, out of curiosity, you know, to see kind of what the natural food scene was like in the U.S., I came to Anaheim and I walked the halls of Expo West. And um, that's where I really, really saw this glaring um, hole in the market. There was just uh, thousands of stalls present and, you know, all the buyers and the retailers, but there was zero diversity, right? Like there's so few brands uh, being represented um, by people of color and the gatekeepers to um, healthy eating. There was also just a glaring lack of diversity. So um, that was the the first kind of moment um, when I realized that this is the time is ripe for something like this because I could see um, that this was not representative of the population in the U.S. or what we were interested in uh, eating and um, and what people look like right and so uh, when I went back to in Shanghai I just started getting to work in um, trying to figure out how do I um, you know, mass produce or, you know, produce at scale, something that I was making out of uh, my pot in my kitchen. And I had no idea where to start. Like my background is in brand management at P&G. I worked for BlackBerry in pre-iPhone days. I worked for Frog Design, a tech company as well. And, you know, uh, food was always my passion. But, you know, even when I was running my restaurant, I was figuring it all out as I was going. Um, and, you know, when it came to, uh, you know, uh, working with a factory, like how do you get stuff from the farm to the factory and then from the factory to the U.S. on a boat? Like I had no idea. Um, but I just kind of started reverse engineering some things. I went to the grocery stores, picked up, you know, products that I saw on the shelf. Um, you know, in China, you know, you have to kind of write the the factory where everything is made needs to be on the label. So that was kind of, um, you know, the way that I started contacting some of these co-packers. 
And um, the more that I spoke to, the more I learned kind of how to present myself and like, you know, because everyone's like skeptical, <laughs> skeptical of like a random person just calling them up and being like, you know, I want to make a hot sauce. They probably get those calls all the time. So um, I had to kind of learn how to navigate that situation. And, you know, and a lot of these um, co-packers, they might like misrepresent themselves. Everyone told me that they were able to export to the U.S., but like the FDA certification was actually a really involved process that not a lot of factories had uh, were, were able to do. So, you know, I went through this like crazy kind of um, experience of just, you know, visiting factories and, um, and the, the, there's a lot of stories that I could tell about (laughs) that period of my life. But, um, but uh, yeah, it was, you know, also doing business in China. It's like a whole other thing. Um, A lot of hot pot dinners, a lot of Baijiu consumed, which is like the Chinese liquor. Um, It's a lot like mezcal in a way, I think, but um, Anyway, so um, eventually uh, found the factory that um, a factory that I could trust. And um, that's when I launched the Kickstarter. Um, And, you know, I I chose Kickstarter because, you know, it it was a platform where um, there was an inbuilt audience that was already willing to try new things and also willing to um, kind of cut you some slack, right? Like you're, the Kickstarter backers do not expect to have the product instantly. They know that it's a, they're supporting an entrepreneurial journey and they may or may not even see the end result. Um, but, um, you know, they're, they're there for, for that journey. So um, I thought it was a perfect audience for me to introduce this. And so I um, produced a video that was, you know, that some friends of mine, like we got together in my hometown Chengdu and we like filmed for a week um, and just really tried to bring to life like this, um, this beautiful culture that, um, that I knew and loved. Um, and I just wanted to expose more people to. And, um, and yeah, so our thesis was that, you know, Chinese uh, ingredients are some of the greatest in the world. And there is a reason why they never made their way to the West. Um, and that reason, there's so many reasons behind that. But, you know, there's lack of awareness, lack, lack of education, but also that prejudice against it that I was talking about. And so, of course, the best quality ingredients would never make its way to the West when, you know, even domestically, they're rare and consumed super um super quickly as soon as they're harvested because I mean China is a huge country and so um you know there's some of the yeah the the people like the chefs and just people who are like gourmands like they they um they uh know about these these ingredients and so they're instantly sold out as soon as they are available so um I I wanted to you know shine light on that and just you know for me it was really important to um, maintain a high standard of quality for the ingredients and for the technique um, in creating these products because um, through my research and, and visiting all these factories, I really came to understand why a lot of mass-produced products um, are kind of watered down and are not super high quality. And that is because at every bend, there's ways to kind of um, take the easier route or like you know, um, cut corners, right? Like, you know, for a lot of, um, especially when, you know, companies are told that people aren't willing to pay more than like $2 for Chinese food, um, then that's even more incentive to not use high quality ingredients to, you know, um, and to just kind of get away with something that is, um, 
you know, much lower in quality. So um, it was so difficult for me to try to convince these co-packers that I was working with to, um, to maintain kind of my standard of, of quality that, you know, I documented this in, in a Medium post, um, everything from uh, getting them to switch over to the suppliers that I wanted um, to, you know, just like the intricacies of even like, you know, printing uh, labels and, you know, getting the right color on the labels, like everything was um, a struggle. (laughs) And, um, but at the end of the day, I think um, that, you know, that effort that I put in um, did pay off because the the end result was a product that you really couldn't compare to anything that was available on shelves. Um, And um, yeah. And so, you know, with the first, introduction of of fly budging on kickstarter the label was you know a a friend of mine um who was a designer a freelance designer uh made it and my main goal with that design uh which was really bright and flashy and super kind of hyper modern um you know was to have the um the kind of consumer question why they expected chinese food to look different right because you always um, like you, you have these associations with what Chinese food should look like or cost. And, um, you know, we were selling something that was $15 a jar and um, like a super modern design. And so that was like the, the goal. And it was as simple as that. Um, and then as the company kind of evolved and grew, um, I wanted to, um, uh, you know, we, we started embodying more of like kind of the reason why I started this company in the first place and, um, and our mission and our values. And I felt like the original design no longer served to tell that whole story. Um, and, you know, as I also found my own voice um, and adopted my birth name, Jing, um, that was all kind of part of this journey. And I wanted to capture that in the rebrand, which we launched in November. Wow. So talk about the initial decision to go mostly, correct me if I'm wrong, direct to consumer. Like, you, Is that just because you had such demand on Kickstarter? And also, did, did you feel when you were walking through the expo that it would be more difficult to convince buyers to buy your product? Or sort of what, what made you sort of go the online route to begin with? And sort of how are you approaching other channels as things are growing? Even when I was um, running my restaurant called Baoism in Shanghai and uh, Fly by Jing, when Fly by Jing was a pop-up dining concept, um, I had kind of an inbuilt kind of social audience, right? People were following what, um, what I was putting out and I knew that, um, you know, there was a community kind of that was supporting my work. And so that was... Um, you know, so I knew that I, I had that. And yes, the Kickstarter, you know, there was about 2,500 backers on Kickstarter. So that was a really great base, especially considering that they were um, the, you know, early adopting kind of trendsetters in their communities. Um, people who were, you know, really influential, whether it was in tech or food or travel. So, um, you know, I knew that through word of mouth alone, like there was kind of enough of an audience that I could launch on D2C. Um, and, you know, I'm Canadian and a lot of my friends actually work for Shopify. Some of my former colleagues at BlackBerry are now running things at Shopify. And so I kind of knew that Shopify was like a great platform, had a lot of the tools built into it already. And it was just kind of out of the box. So, um, you know, and also they made it so easy and accessible, right? Like there's very little barrier to, to, um, starting a store and the, um, 
you know, I, I knew instinctu- instinctively that um, going into retail would be a, a huge lift, right? And like, I didn't um, have any connections in the US. I'd lived in Asia for like 12 years by that point. Um, and I'm Canadian. So I knew nothing about this landscape. And just from walking the halls at XOS, yeah, like I could see that you know, it'd be hard to kind of penetrate that is a lot of white guys in suits. And, you know, it was like, uh, white guys in suits talking to white guys in suits. And so it was, um, something I just like instinctively knew that was going to be harder for a person of color, um, to break into. And, um, yeah. And there's something very like democratic about Shopify. So. Absolutely. So walk me through, uh, and you and I have talked about this uh, for for a video we did like six or seven months ago. But just uh, how has the last year been? Because it sort of began to explode in early 2020. Am I incorrect about that? Yeah. So I would say you know we launched exactly two years ago in February of 2019, and when we launched, um, you know there was I didn't really tell anybody because I I designed this website myself and it was super basic um but yeah we just I just emailed everybody that you know had backed me on Kickstarter and told them about it and so it started to kind of slowly grow from there um but by like July of 2019 it started to you know grow pretty rapidly I would say like 30 percent month over month um but still like nothing could have prepared me for um March of 2020 when, you know, quarantine, when everyone started quarantining. And um, and then in April, when the New York Times did this huge feature on us in the Sunday magazine. And um, I think, you know, the there was already um, kind of some awareness of, of our product and, and of our brand. And, you know, um, we were really the first like modern company to um, modern food company to introduce like chili crisp to the U S market. And um, there was a lot of kind of buzz about this new type of hot sauce. So we were pretty well covered in the media, like since day one. Um, But, you know, there was, I I had no idea like kind of what the impact of the New York times would be um, when Sam Sifton did an article about us, in Sunday Magazine, it was uh, talking about this Chinese condiment at the height of COVID um, and talking to me about my experience and, you know, facing kind of race, racist kind of backlash. Um, and uh, but the amount of support that we got after that was was really, um, you know, affirming for what we were doing. And um, and I think the pre-work that we had done prior to that just really like kind of building our community and, um, you know, really that um, the word of mouth that already existed just really got amplified once once quarantine started. And so uh, we ended up, you know, uh, you know, so I actually was the only person working on this full time up until August of 2020. Wow. And now now I have a team of close to eight I think eight people full time, um, which I could not have dreamed of, and um, it's it's been this is crazy ride um, in this last year. And um, you know, we ended twenty twenty uh, about a thousand percent up from twenty nineteen, um, and you know, there's no sign of really slowing down. Um, we are this year starting to look at. Um, going omni-channel into into some retail stores um and 
yeah, our, our ambition, you know, has become, you know, from just trying to change people's perception about Chinese food with like a hot sauce um, to really, you know, becoming uh, the first household name that, you know, stands for high quality Chinese food. Walk me through just you as the founder and once the only employee there up until August, when you when you have sort of a catalyst from, you know, a piece of media, you know, you get written up in the Times and you sort of explode from there. How do you approach marketing? Like, what, what, what do you do? What do you do following that so that you keep with that ride, but you also don't overpromise in case you've run out? It feels like that's a very difficult tightrope to walk when suddenly you've gone viral and but you still want to keep adding gasoline to the fire, if that makes any sense. Mm. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, and we, you know, since the beginning, our demand has outstripped our supply. <laughs> and so when the New York Times article came out, um, we stocked out uh, for several months, for about four months. And that was really, really challenging because, um, you know, China was shut down at the beginning of last year and uh, then, you know, then the U.S. shut down and there's just like a million logistical nightmares and, you know, things to deal with. But um, our customers ended up, you know, waiting some of them for like three to four months to receive their product. Um, and like we talked about on our last conversation, um, we were just super transparent with people and, you know, that that level of transparency and openness about what we were going through and the challenges we were facing, I think, um, you know, that's all people wanted to hear, right? Like everybody was having a hard time and, um, you know, people just didn't want to be lied to or kept in the dark. And so, you know, it also helped that, you know, we were quite active in the community, like helping um, contribute, um, you know, 10 to 20% of our revenue to organizations feeding the frontline and um, doing essential work in Black communities. And, you know, we were, we were very communicative about all these efforts and people were happy to be able to support some of these organizations with their pre-order money. And even the, the, uh, we, 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 I think we've, um, constantly kind of underestimated, um, our, our, our growth, like our ability to, to keep growing. Um, and so, you know, we've stocked out quite a few times and this is one of the biggest things that we're facing. Um, and I think, you know, when that, when this happens, um, and also just kind of built into the way that I look at marketing is that, you know, it is better to cultivate your existing community and, you know, really make people uh, into repeat purchasers who will, you know, sing sing your praises to like, you know, everyone they know rather than trying to just like acquire new customers. So for that reason, we haven't really um, spent a lot uh, compared to other brands who are kind of at our size um, to acquire new customers. And we're constantly thinking about like, how do we uh, engage our community more? And we've seen this incredible engagement from them. Like there are people, people um, who are our consumers are, you know, kind of, it surprises me how supportive and how fanatical they are about the products, about, um, you know, how the products have affected their lives. And you really saw that, especially during COVID, right, when everybody had like food fatigue and, you know, it was the, our products became this thing that, you know, so many people emailed us to tell us that it like had made their 
lives brighter during quarantine. And, you know, they were so happy to like, you know, tell all their friends and family about us. And so, you know, we're, we're constantly thinking about like, how can we, um, how can we, um, you know, create even more closeness between the brand and them. And, you know, it's, it's um, one of the things about having a brand that is so personal is that people actually, um, it you know, it's a, it's natural for kind of me to, you know, form a kind of relationship with our customers and they, they really feel, um, and they do have access to me directly. <laughs> they can, you know, they email me, they, um, and then when they write back to kind of our, our marketing, you know, our, our emails and stuff like that, they, they address all the emails to like Jing. So, um, yeah, that's been a really um, interesting process for me because, you know, when I started this brand, I was actually thinking maybe I should like not be a part of the brand at all. Um, I always thought, you know, there's tons of brands that do so well. You have no idea who the founder is. And I was kind of uncomfortable kind of putting myself in front of the in front of the brand uh, for a long time until, you know, I realized that I was actually doing a disservice to the brand by doing that and that um, there was, you know, one of our uh, missions has become, you know, to create more space for diverse and, you know, diverse voices to exist, right, uh, within the Asian mm-hmm. diaspora. And, um, you know, the one of the ways that I could do that was to share my own story and my own voice. That's a really interesting thing that I feel like a lot of founders probably you know, uh, they think about, you know, is it just the brand? Do I put myself in there? What made you sort of realize that you you should be front center? Was it the response to articles written about you? Was it just sort of a natural evolution of seeing how the product and the product line in of itself was a reflection of who you were? How did that realization come about? Was it scary? Did you think it was scary to like put yourself so much on the line? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I've always been very introverted and, you know, to the, I mean, if you look at kind of me adopting this name, Jenny, as a, as a metaphor, like I was really hiding behind this um, facade my entire life. And, and to the point where I like kind of lost touch of who I was myself. And um, so it was absolutely scary. And I wouldn't say that like now, you know, I am putting myself front and center in the brand. I see myself as kind of a vehicle to help tell our brands, um, story and and our our mission and to kind of uh you know create a connection point for others to to connect to it really um so it's it's more in service of the brand and um you know when i was talking about creating space for more voices to exist this is um our core mission now because you know one of the problems is that um people have tended for so long to look at you know um different cultural groups as a monolith, right? There can only be one Chinese something. There's, you know, all all Chinese chili sauces are the same. And it's whatever I want it to be because I once went to Chinatown and had this thing. And so it's very, you know, oppressive. And it doesn't allow for, you know, a multitude of voices to exist. And so when, um, when, when I launched the rebrand in November, that was kind of the um, the the thing that I realized I needed to do was to share my story, not so that you know, not because my story is so important, but it's rather that it is a voice that deserves to deserves to um, you know a story that deserves to be told, and hopefully through 
hearing my story, others can also feel um, a, a connection point or, a, you know, I think seeking belonging is such a universal thing. And so when we launched our rebrand, I wrote this essay about my journey and kind of reclaiming my name, Jing. And, um, and you know, using this chili sauce company as a vehicle to to um, to express that story and um, the amount of uh, the amount of support and, and the feedback that we received from people of all backgrounds was really overwhelming. I think you know um, people. Um, I think everyone can identify with with that feeling of um, of. Uh, of not belonging. And, um, and I think, you know, that was one of the reasons why our rebrand did so well was people were just like, very happy to support um, a company that is creating more space for more diverse voices to exist. So since we launched, you know, there's been quite a few other um, Asian food brands that have also launched. And, you know, um, we we really see this, you know, not we we see them not as competition, but as you know, um, collaborators in kind of increasing the pie for everyone. So let's talk about you know, you know we've we've gotten a bit a lot about how it started and how the last year has been. And you mentioned that you're thinking about they're going omni-channel this year. So what what are your sort of plans specifically for this year? And I'm also just would love to hear: Are you do you have any worries about shifts in demand given that consumption patterns shifted so much in 2020 and no one knows what 2021 is going to be like or how people do, do you think it'll still be a rocket ship or how are you sort of preparing for if, if the growth will still keep a pace? Um, so I think that our products and the way that I've thought about, you know, any new potential products that we come out with has always been, you know, how do we make it easier for people, right? How do we um, fit into their lives more seamlessly and naturally? And for that reason, we have never, you know, prescribed that our products are only for, you know, Chinese dishes. Like you have to make mako tofu this way and you have to use it this way. It's um, from day one, we've, you know, tried to just, you know, um, you know, offer it up to the consumer how they want to engage with our products and our brand. They can, you know, in the same way that they can engage with our brand in a, a surface level of as just, you know, checking out our Instagram and, you know, liking some of the, the food porn that's it's, that's on there. They can also like dig deeper and kind of like, you know, uh, uncover some of the more, um, you know, meaningful kind of aspects of, of our brand values and, and so on. And so same with the, the food, we, we um, offer some of the highest quality, you know, Chinese pantry essentials that you can find anywhere, like from our three-year aged doubanjang to our tribute pepper that was so high quality, it used to be given to the emperor, like all of these things we offer, right? But if you just wanted a hot sauce that will go really well with your with your nuggets or, you know, on your pizza, like you can also engage with us in that way. So um, we've, you know, we've seen a, a rise in, in consumption because people are cooking more at home, but also, you know, the products are just as good on takeout. You know, it's, um, it's just as good on like a multi-course elaborate Chinese meal as it is on your like late night, I don't know, like hot dog or something. So, um, 
Yeah. So I think in that way, like we strive to be as versatile as possible. And so I don't really see any changes in, um, in like due to COVID, you know, um, affecting, affecting us in that way. Um, in terms of where we're going this year, uh, we are continuing to look forward to, um, you know, rapid growth. I think we're really, um, doubling down on efforts to retain our customers and just engage them further and offering them high value. So we're about to launch subscriptions and subscriptions is something that I've um, hesitated to launch for a long time. Um, Cause I always, you know, knew that like the problem with subscriptions with food products, especially food products that are like ours. And it's not like a, you know, necessarily like a, like a coffee that you drink every single morning or, you know, like a soda, you know, it's, um, there's a risk that it starts to pile up and then you have churn. And so, um, I've always been thinking about like, what is that extra layer of value we can, we can provide to our customers beyond just a discount on the product. Um, the discount on the product is great and it's a great way to get them in, but you know, the churn happens later on. So as we launch, the subscriptions, we are putting a lot of thought into um, how do we create a real community around our biggest users, right? Like, how do we get them to talk to each other? Um, what is that platform? We actually don't have the answer to that yet. Um, so, you know, it's like, you know, other brands. Uh, so some, some brands have used like Facebook groups. Um, you know, we actually just launched an OnlyFans. <laughs> which was a bit of a departure from the normal um, kind of marketing uh, tactics, but this, you know, it came from it came from just like a joke that we were we were my team and I were talking about like wouldn't it be funny if we sent like Jing's nudes um, <laughs> and just pictures pictures of noodles or of me eating noodles um, and you know tied it into a text messaging campaign where we're like you know, texting people at night being like, you up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, so it started from a joke, but actually, you know, it it is an experiment, right? In us trying to figure out what is the best way for us to engage with the customers, especially for such a personal brand where people feel they have an intimate relationship with me. How do I make myself more available or, you know, offer people kind of exclusive content, let's say, or um, yeah, deeper connection points that, um, that, uh, you know, just Instagram and Facebook can't provide. So we're, we're testing it out. Um, but, you know, our main goal here is really to uh, create a community that keeps you coming back for, for that sense of community rather than just um, a, a discount on, you know, a product. Absolutely. So we're getting close to out of time, but I really want to ask you this follow-up, which is, you know, the OnlyFans is a, is a great example of you putting yourself as a, as an extension or, you know, totem of the brand, but do you, and you said, you said, you know, you were scared to do that, but do you, how do you deal with sort of the overextension or the consumers expecting too much out of you specifically because there's a name to it? So like, if they're specifically text, like, is there a sort of weird, overextension of the personal where you know you you need you need space between who you are and who the customer is in the company or are you okay with that there's such a direct connection with you and that they can directly complain to you for instance Mm. yeah that's a really interesting question um i think that uh the brand is um a reflection of me in a lot of ways like i'm quite introverted um and there's but there's, uh, you know, like I'll speak up um, and more and more so now that, you know, I'm uh, since I've uh, re 
reclaim my birth name, I've found more and more kind of, um, com- like I- I've been more comfortable in standing in my truth. And so I've, you know, been able to find my voice a lot more and, you know, but, um, the, there's kind of a, I think, um, a, a quiet confidence in what the brand does and uh, how we express our ideas. We're never like shouting from the rooftops. We're never um, prescribing or lecturing. Uh, we're really um, trying to, you know, get people to um, rethink some of the, um, you know, existing uh, structures or the narratives in in their minds. And so we, we, we do so, um, by just asking questions or sometimes holding up a mirror to, to, um, to people. And, um, I think in that same way, uh, people kind of, I don't know. I, I feel like there's an unspoken understanding between customers and, and our brand and, and me. Um, so, and, and that's kind of the um, underlying tone to everything. So I, I don't think that anyone is really, um, going to like I think there's a, a deep level of respect that we we have for each other uh the customer to us and, and vice versa and um there's some healthy boundaries there I think so <laughs> um so it doesn't really concern me I think um I think you know uh the, the boundary has to be drawn on both sides and um we've managed to do that so far and um yeah but uh at the end of the day um we're really just uh, united through flavor and it goes back to like fly restaurants, right? Like I feel like fly restaurants are the perfect um, equalizer in a lot of ways. You see Ferraris parked next to bicycles. Everybody's just sharing this moment um, around a table on the sidewalk, right? And it's, it's, um, it's really beautiful because everything is left behind and you're just there for that moment to share in this union of, of delicious flavor. And, um, and, uh, and and everything is kind of equal for a moment. And so I think um, that's the that's what inspired me to start Fly by Jing. And that's the vibe that we kind of want to keep carrying into, into our future. Jing, this has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I've, I learned a lot and this was uh, really, really fun. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week.